Hello everyone, this is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform and uh, we are doing basically noontime seminar, um, but this will also serve as the podcast for this week. I am without a co-host, so you guys get to be my co-host. And so uh, what I would ask everyone is that if you have any questions uh, specific to the topic or really not even specific to the topic, just go ahead and type that into questions below because there'll be periods where I'm going to pause and then um, I can address those questions and it gives me kind of like a, a way to have some breaks within this discussion because it's sort of difficult to do these things alone. So give me those questions, type it in the question box in the dialogue here on GoToWebinar and we'll get rolling here. So a couple things right out the gate. Uh, we just put up a special related to um, our platinum memberships for a lot of people that are new to Eat to Perform or trying to figure out what plan works best for me, things of that nature. The biggest question that we get is what's the difference between platinum and select? And Platinum is where you're coached by an individual coach, where you have your own coach and they can follow your plan, you know, along the way. And we sort of, um, you know, kind of take the information that you give us in the app and then we apply that to uh, what we think is the best fit for you coach wise. Um, but select, which is our lower priced option, you're actually coached by a team really is no difference in the amount of reviews and things of this nature, but obviously you can imagine that once someone gets to know you a little bit well, you have a little bit more of a personal relationship. That used to be the only difference. Um, there is a much bigger difference now, though, with this new offering, and what we did was we added our meal planning templates to the platinum offer, which we think is a significant upgrade. Um, biggest thing that we get from people is that, you know, we're, you know, it's always difficult to get started because they don't know what to eat. They don't have any real ideas of what that looks like. And so these templates really are helpful in that regard. And, and all the way in the back, we have my fitness pal links so that you can press the food logger. We run, my fitness pal is the one that's most used. So that's the one that um, we have used as well. Hold on one second. So that's something that's really exciting and um, I think is going to end up being like a really cool addition for us. You know, we're really working hard to, um, you know, just make that product really awesome. Uh, the last piece of that is that, um, if you want something a little bit more personalized, you can get that for an additional charge, which is $29.95. What happens in that scenario is that um, a there's actually three coaches on that team. They will take you know a survey that they give you, and then what they end up doing is is building a plan off that specific to what you like to eat, how you eat, things of that nature. So that's that's kind of a cool thing. Um, it's only a one time charge. So um, 
that is a cool product that we just added to the mix. Um, the other thing that's coming that you'll probably see, especially on the main page, is that uh, within Facebook, you have the ability to um, take on supporters, right? And so uh, you can make special content for those supporters. And so for, I believe it's $9.95 a month, and what we've decided to do is really sort of ongoing learning for everyone, right? And so what Brad is going to do, so I'll give you an example of the kind of content that will be there. Um, so this week, there was a lot of information related to um, eggs because there was a study that really talked about eggs um, and the negative impact of eggs. And so, Brad, if you're a supporter, will make a video that talks about that. And we all know, you know, if you listen to any media outlet, there's, you know, there seems to be a study. And oftentimes those studies get misinterpreted. And so we want to use that channel for that so that, you know, everyone's not confused. You know, a, a big part of this whole thing is that people get confused. There's just so many messages out there and things of that nature. So we're going to use that channel for that and give you guys some really cool information um, and videos in that regard. The other thing that has been a real big hit, and I'll talk about that here. Well, I'll kind of mix in the two. So we still have our book, Keep It Off. Um, you know, actually, I think it might be on special. It kind of depends on when you end up buying it. But we have the case studies, and so we attached, I believe it was six case studies with that for just a nominal fee um, when you buy the book. And the reaction to that has been overwhelmingly positive. And so that is going to be another use for this supporters um, function within Facebook so we can then give you more case studies where you can watch those case studies, um, see what fits for you, um, listen to coaches as we think about how we coach you so you have a better understanding. Like if you think about, and this is actually going to be a big topic within um, the podcast itself or the seminar itself, is um, there's kind of two ways to do things, right? There's the tell people a way to do thing which I don't think is near as effective as to teach people a way to do thing. And so when we're teaching you, what we're trying to do is kind of get you comfortable with this process of trial and error and having mostly success, right? Um, kind of more of a three steps forward, one step back every now and again, because you're going to naturally going to be trying some things that or maybe a little bit outside of the box, whether that be exercise or foods that you're adding back into uh, your equation. So that's what the supporter tab will, will be. But like I said, you know, if you buy the book, the case studies that we have there are already really good. I know for the uh, first supporter case study that I'm going to be doing is a really interesting one. Um, it really talks about someone that has already lost 200 pounds and um, still has goals moving forward. And I'm going to lay out the path 
that she will take to get there. And uh, I think you, I think everyone will find that really interesting. But the other case studies are similar to that, but we have five or six different scenarios, um, sometimes with men, sometimes with women, sometimes with, you know, what I tried to do, I did three of them. I tried to take someone that started at 300 pounds, is now right at 200. Then I took, I believe it was someone in the 180 range and then someone in the 140 range. So I, so I try to cover a wide span and then the other coaches also kind of added in um, their observations. So, okay, let me just double check questions and make sure that uh, my mic's on or, or something weird isn't happening. Let's see here. So Darcy asked a question, and so uh, I can address that question once we uh, move through some of the basic ideas that we're going to go through, and then I'll address that afterwards. So, but that is a great question, and um, we'll answer a little bit of it as we're kind of going through the main topic. But um, okay, so in my world. Um, which is a very different world than uh, many of you live in, where you know many of your friends are, are dieting a lot and you're getting a lot of these mixed messages in social media. In my world, a lot of the people that I follow tend to be scientists, people that study diets, mostly PhDs, this type of thing. And one of the, I would say, annoying pieces of the Joe Rogan podcast was that there was this bias that I think that he has understood and has tried to rectify in different ways, but but he still kind of comes at it with a little bit of bias, and, and we'll talk about that. But He's had a few different um, guests on recently that sort of challenge his basic premise that low carb is the best way to go. And just to be clear, um, what we're going to be talking about is not low carb dependent or high carb dependent or moderate carb dependent. It's sort of interesting because whenever you're talking about carbohydrates, Immediately, anybody that's low carb says, well, high carb. And as if, you know, the opposite of low carb is high carb. Well, the opposite of low carb is high carb, but there can also be a middle ground of, of moderate carbs or what I would consider to be a mostly whole foods way of eating. And so that kind of helps the discussion a lot. But recently, there was a discussion with Lane Norton and then I think the guy's name is Dom D'Agostino, but I'm not completely sure. So if I got that wrong, I apologize. That was a good discussion. I felt like, um, you know, those guys are friends. They actually wrote a book together. And um, what Lame effectively did with the discussion related to Dom was that he right out the gate had Dom come out and admit that calories were a significant component to any low carb way of eating. And if any of you 
have listened to any low carb gurus or things of this nature, you hear a lot of talk about insulin. You hear a lot of talk about you know all these different factors that really are outside of calories. And one of the things that you're seeing is that there's a lot of people getting stuck with this low carb approach because they don't have specific calories in place, right? And so if you look at us, right, we're calorie agnostic. Now, a lot of people think that we are um, carb proponents, right? And the you know, the simple fact of the matter is, is that I don't really care if you're eating carbohydrates or no carbohydrates. But what does need to happen is what I'm going to be discussing in this podcast. And that's basically that your plan needs to move both up and down. And I'll talk a little bit about why that's important and why, you know, some of the fears, you know, so like if, as an example, you you took a low carb approach or you took a low fat approach and then you pulled all the water out of your body and lost a lot of weight in that regard. Now, all of a sudden, you're, you're potentially going to be fearful of having food as an ally. And so I'm going to walk you through a little bit of, of my thought process, but also kind of give you some some ideas of, of where the um, podcast that uh, Joe Rogan just did. So the one that Joe Rogan just did was with Gary Tobbs and Stefan Guillenet, um, or Guillenet. Um, I'm not sure Stefan's uh, last name or how to pronounce it, but um, I have had a few conversations with him on Facebook. I think very similar to Lane, um, he really wanted to point out that he is also agnostic as it relates to calories that that it does not come down to a specific type of of you know macronutrient that's a problem right and this is important because when you look at so so one of the notes that i have here is that gary Tobbs has sold a lot of books stefan has not and it's important to note why Stefan hasn't and why Gary has, right? The three books, um, let's, let's see, uh, it's what, um, uh, shoot, the, uh, I know one is the sugar hypothesis, he, he proposes the sugar hypothesis that whenever adding sugar, um, you know, uh, into any type of diet that that causes this major problem. And once again, no one's pro sugar here, but we are pro, you know, evidence. And um, so so in that book, of course, if you eat sugar and logically you think, well, I'm a sugar addict, well, then you're going to be really interested in the contents of that book. The other one. um was gosh i can't remember the name of this book um and and it's so funny because i have it right over there um and stefan was interesting one of the things that was interesting was that stefan's journey was the same as mine uh good calories bad calories that's what it is um and uh i think the he had another book that was like um why why uh, we're getting fat or something of that nature. But anyway, so good calories, bad calories was like a, a game changer. And it was a bestseller. 
as, as you may or may not know, he is a science writer for the New York Times. And Good Calories, Bad Calories, when I read it and when Stefan read it, we thought, wow, game changer, right? And so immediately went low carb. And of course, you lose weight, but then you sort of hit this wall. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why and how you get past that wall. But if you go to listen to the podcast, and I highly recommend that you should, because even though Stefan's going to seem like he gets in the weeds and Tobbs is going to tell these stories that may or may not be annoying to you, both of them made a compelling arguments for their sides. But the difference between the two, and actually when I talked a little bit earlier uh, about uh, you know becoming an Eat to Perform supporter within Facebook in this special content, Brad is actually doing a series breaking down this podcast. So we think it was a pretty big deal. So, um, you know, you go ahead, listen to it. It is two and a half hours long. It does get redundant. It does get boring. And they're kind of sniping at each other, which was very different than the one that Lane did with Dom because they were friendly. And uh, you could definitely tell right out the gate that that Stefan and Gary aren't friendly. They had a they had a um, incident that happened eight years ago between those two guys. And so that started the the downhill thing. But but what really started it was when Stefan did good calories, bad calories and took all the carbs out of his diet and then sort of got stuck and started to do what I did, which was look for evidence. You found a lot of evidence related to calories and the mind-body connection and um, not a lot of evidence that, you know, as long as you're not diabetic, you know, that insulin was going to be the, the big thing that regulates every single thing, right? And so Stefan in the podcast, I think, did a real good job of laying out the specifics related to um, his thing. But when you look at Stefan's book compared to Gary's book, right, good calories, bad calories, what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that you've been told a whole bunch of lies and that there's this big conspiracy against you. And that is a narrative that is really easy to sell. That's why he sells a lot of books, right? Because we don't, you know, you know books that are empowering don't typically sell, especially diet books, don't typically sell as well as books that, you know, tell you that you're a victim, right? That, that really sort of make, you know, and, and logically, most of us can go, Sugar's not great for us, right? So clearly, you know, he's saying, here's a whole book about the sugar hypothesis. You know, this is my problem. And I think, I think that that's what happens for a lot of people is that they want to look for a really simple solution. And the reality is there isn't a simple solution, right? I mean, Gary would argue that there is a really simple solution. Um, I would argue that taking that approach is what confuses people overall 
And it's that part of trial and error that I will admit is a little bit more difficult, but it's not that much more difficult. And I think I can lay it out pretty, pretty well here in just a bit. So that's the context for what we're going to be talking about here. One thing I will say is that uh, I did not really appreciate Joe fitting in his bias. bias. Stefan did not really go at him whenever he said junkie snacks that are all sugary and carbs. And he kept saying junkie snacks that are all, are all sugary and carbs. And what was interesting is that Gary brought up a specific example of a junkie snack that was carbs and he mentioned Lay's potato chips. So I immediately went to Lay's potato chips and the calories in Lay's potato chips is roughly 55% fat and roughly 45% carbs, which if, if Gary believes the example that he's talking about, then he's actually supporting Stefan's point of view that it really is this mix of calories, right? That, you know, if you, if you try to eat just fat or you try to eat just sugar or just carbohydrates, what you're going to find is that you're not going to really like eating that way and you will not eat as much. And Stefan actually pointed this out that um, there are cultures that eat refined sugar with rice and they don't end up gaining a lot of weight. And so kind of the basic idea of what, you know, Gary proposes is that, you know, those people would be endlessly hungry because insulin's run amok and they won't be able to figure it out. And where I believe he's wrong and what I think is the bigger problem is that overconsumption is much easier when, if you've ever tasted anything with carbohydrates and fat, that's what makes them really yummy. That's what makes them easy to overconsume. So this processed foods, you know, things of that nature doesn't mean there can't be a role for some of those things, right? We'll talk a little bit about that um, as we go. But I just thought it was interesting that, you know, Joe mentioned cookies. What makes cookies so good, right? Yeah, there's a little bit of sugar in there, but there's butter, you know, there's chocolate, chocolate chips, you know, peanut butter, you know, all the things, you know, so there's, it's, it, my point being is that it's not just sugar that makes foods easy to overconsume, And there may be times, of course, you know, in the, in the, in the structure of a life, you know, filled with joy where you're going to want to eat a little bit more flexibly. And so we'll, we'll walk you through um, what that looks like. And so uh, <laughs> what was interesting was that at the end of the podcast, um, Joe says something to the, to the, to the point of, um, well, we just did a three hour podcast and got nowhere. Um, so I, so I thought that was, that was sort of funny. Um, I've seen people say that Stefan seemed smug. I think most of those people had kind of a bias, um, but he did seem a little smug, truthfully, um, because he and Gary don't get along. Um, and Gary 
was very dismissive of him in the past and uh, because he kept asking questions that Gary, you know, didn't know how to answer. And that comes across in the podcast where Stefan is, you know, uh, pointing to examples. Gary tries to step in on the conversation. What I will say as someone that is a critic of Tobbs, um, he comes off pretty good in this, especially since, you know, he's being diminished. Now, he did use Stefan's name multiple ways, and there were a number of ways where I felt like he was trying to diminish Stefan also, but you, that was happening on both sides, right? So, you know, kind of keep that in mind. It was really interesting when you think of it from the standpoint of, you know, the things that we try to watch, the things that we consume, they tend to be a little bit more exciting when, you know, people are kind of going at it a little bit, right? And so Gary did a good job of telling stories, right? And and Stefan did not do a good job of telling stories. He did a good job of kind of making fun of Gary's stories. But a big part of Gary's appeal is that people like stories, right? People like narratives that they can follow that don't have to necessarily be related to evidence all the time. And I would argue that people on our side, which is, you know, the calorie balance side or energy balance side, we don't do a very good job of that. We get too in the weeds related to all these different studies and we don't bring it down to the average person. And the average person is, is easily sold on an idea that you know, one specific thing is a problem for them, right? So if you're 300 pounds and you're going to be very susceptible to Gary's message, it's very simple. And let's be real, if you've been kind of over consuming both carbohydrates and fats for a while, virtually anything that you do is going to be advantageous for you, right? And so it kind of gives you this false paradigm right off the bat, and which is why, you know, the second piece, I'm going to go into a little bit more specifics to that. Um, but I really want to hammer home that Tobbs has sold a lot of books and a big narrative to why is because in dieting, we all cuddle up to um, the idea that we are victims, right? And, you know, that approach of you take one thing out, it, it might help you momentarily, but it's not the real answer. And so that's where I'm going to go through um, in, in the second piece. So I'm going to use this time to answer some questions here. And I think actually the first question I have is directly related to the transition that I'm going to need to make. All right. So let's see. I finished my first week of fat loss. What should I go into my decision to further drop my macros? Thought it would automatically drop more after the first week. 
Well, it doesn't automatically drop, um, but it is typically factored in, right? And so what ends up happening is a coach will ask you, right? Because I'll give you a reason why we ask. We actually used to do it, like you said. Um, but what some people complained about, so so let's say that you started off and you're down five to six pounds at the macros that you're at. And then, you know, we just came in and changed your macros lower as a result. Then you might get mad because it becomes a little bit harder to um, follow the plan as things get a little bit more difficult, right? And so we went to asking, so, you know, what I would suggest to you is that, uh, you know, you, you talk to Paul in the seminar and that at roughly about 10 days that, um, you know, your coach will ask you. So if you're seven days in, that's probably why your coach hasn't asked you. But go ahead and message a coach and you would be fine. Paul is saying, would you provide a link to the podcast you've been referring to throughout the session? Um, I can. I'll do that later because I just don't want to disrupt the, the podcast itself. But it's the Joe Rogan podcast. It was only a couple of days ago, and it's with Gary Tobbs and Stefan Guillenet. So Stefan's uh, is S-T-E-P-H-A-N. His last name's G-U-Y-E-N-E-T. All right. So Stefan brought up a couple things. So this is the second part, and we'll um, walk everyone through some some big concepts that Stefan brought up that I felt like Gary was not going to ever acknowledge because if he were to acknowledge the the truth of what Stefan is saying then he's basically acknowledging that all of his books are bullshit, right? That's the position of, I know the answer, 100% it's this, right? As opposed to, I don't really know. Now, that might not be fair to Gary, but when you book, when you write two books where you're demonizing carbohydrates and then specifically demonizing sugar, and I just want to point out, the evolution of that, right? So when, you know, in the last, oh, I'd say probably 10 years, ketogenic dieting, low-carb dieting has had some favor, lost some favor, um, kind of went into intermittent fasting, and there's all these different things that are kind of, kind of just more ways to restrict and restrict harder, right? Um, it started off initially as carbs and it eventually moved to sugar because sugar was a safer ground, right? So like when you start to take out carbs out of your diet, well, there's a lot of carbs that are useful. Vegetables are useful. Fruits are useful. Um, starches are useful, especially if you're active, right? Sugar's the one thing that kind of everybody can agree on. And so if you're and, and what happens when people buy a book about sugar or they buy like a sugar detox or or something of that nature, you're only buying it because you think you have that problem. 
right? So if you walk into reading that book, that that is your problem and you read it and you go, that's the answer. I know when I read, you know, Tim Ferriss's book and, and then Gary Thomas's book, you know, I was convinced that I was on the more, more, more correct path. Right. And the reality was, is that kept getting me stuck. And the thing that got me over the hump was a little bit of what Stefan talked about. Now, as someone that's seen a lot more data than Stefan has, um, I can reinforce some things that he said, but I also, there are some things that I thought, you know, he might not know as much. Right now, he knows more about most things related to diet than I know, but specifically related to obesity, I've seen a lot of things that most people that talk about it have not seen. Right. And what is helpful for people? One of the really interesting things that was talked about, because, you know, one of the basic premises of what Gary talks about is that exercise really doesn't matter that much. You have to realize that why is he saying that? Because people don't want to enter a food intervention and then think that they also need to exercise to also see a result, right? So if you can say, take out all the sugar out of your diet, it won't matter if you exercise or not, and you'll see great results. Well, what is a great result to Gary and what is a great result to you, right? A great result to Eric, Gary is that you might have a more healthful approach to the way you eat, right? And I think we would all agree that, you know, taking sugar out of your diet or, or some sugars out of your diet probably would be beneficial, especially as it relates to refined. See, that's, that's the other thing too. And that, and that's the thing that I think, you know, we never have this discussion that I see every day, right? And this, the discussion that that everyone wants to have is this junk food argument and then refined sugar argument and people drinking pop. Now, I understand a lot of people drink pop. I understand that or soda or Coke or whatever you call it. Um, and I understand all of that. And I understand that people overconsume foods like Doritos and Lay's potato chips and 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 things of this nature. But what we see on a daily basis is that when people take those things out, it's kind of like that first layer of intervention, right? And and that first layer of intervention, if you don't know, I lost 100 pounds. And I just got a real clue for you. Those first 30 pounds were really easy to lose because you'd start taking away pop out of your diet. You start to move and you start to um, – you know, not rely on convenience foods as much, those first 20 to 30 pounds are a breeze. But what is going to get you to that next place, right? So a couple of interesting things that Stefan talked about was that genetics play a large role as it relates to obesity. And you can listen to the podcast and kind of come to your own conclusion. But what happens for a lot of people in that situation is that they will often 
feel I actually had this discussion with Tracy Mann. Um, this is a book that I recommend to a lot of people is Secrets from the Eating Lab. I don't necessarily recommend Tracy's advice um, on what is the answer, but what I do recommend is this idea that most dieting structures are built on you failing and then needing to cuddle up to additional diets later on, right? And so that was the Weight Watchers business model for, you know, 50, 60 years. And, and now they're struggling because other people are coming in with a similar model. Right. And um, and I'll walk you through it in a little bit of the book. You know, I, I think a lot of people that that have bought and read Keep It Off um, will know what we're talking about. But just because you're genetically predisposed to something does not mean that you're handcuffed and you're going to be a victim to that situation, right? You do have a large amount of control even when genetics are working against you. I can tell you, you know, for my history, um, and, and this is also a narrative that's really easy for all of us to buy, right? My grandma looked like that, my grandfather looked like that, my mom looks like that, I look like this, oh, woe is me. Right. And then you realize that grandma doesn't really walk all that much, doesn't eat a lot, but also, you know, isn't going to the gym. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about a big message that I thought Stefan had an opportunity to talk about that really missed it. Right. Um, and what Gary kept talking about was how can someone become obese under eating? And so, so, I, so I really want to kind of finish up that part about genetics, right? Genetics does not mean that you're not in control of your own journey. It just means that you may have some markers that make it a little bit more difficult for you to be 120 pounds, but it also might make it easier for you to carry more muscle, right? So a lot of these predisposed ideas that we have related to what we should weigh and things of that nature, those don't end up being fact in a lot of cases, and you have to look at the genetic component. Like if you looked at my grandmother, you know, she was a muscular lady. You know, there were images where I was three and four years old, where my grandmother looks like like just total beast mode, right? She looks like, you know, she's lifted weights, you know, every day of her life. She was very active as a, um, as a high school uh, person. She played in many sports, things of that nature. Um, but she also, uh, she worked at a small engine um, factory. And so she was carrying around engines all the time. So my grandmother, you know, at 180, 190 pounds was a very mass muscular person. She was she if you look at the pictures that, you know, I, I have an article with a picture of me and my grandmother. Um, you can tell she was a relatively lean person. Right. Um, a lot of that went away once she started dieting. So let's talk a little bit about that piece because I want to wanted to finish off the genetic piece because even even though you have bad genetics it does not mean that you are not in control 
of what you can do. So Stefan mentioned set point theory and best way to describe it. And I think that a lot of people listening to this, this will ring a big bell. I can't remember who said it, but she said it so eloquently. We were doing a podcast. Oh, shoot. I know who said it now. Uh, her name's Amber. Don't remember her last name. Um, but we were doing a podcast together, and someone asked her in the podcast really kind of a rude question, you know, because she was obese, she became fit, and someone asked her a question like, why did you become obese, you know, and really implied it in a way of, of, you know, why did you overconsume, right? Um, and why did that work against you? Right. And Amber had the best answer that I've ever heard. And it directly points to what Stefan talked about in the podcast. What she said was I dieted my way to obesity. And that was the answer to Gary's question of how people that underconsume can become more fat, right? Without overconsuming all the time, right? And so the basic concept of set point theory, which you know is pretty well thought of in my world of scientists and things of this nature, is that the pressures as a 170-pound woman has related to diets, right? And and underconsuming foods. Um, when we're talking about underconsumption, well, let me let me finish that point. So, 170 per pound person has to eat less to lose weight. We all kind of know that part, right? So, 245 pound person has to eat less, but the differences between the two are not as different as you might think because of set point theory, right? So, basically. What you have is called homeostatic pressure, right? And so homeostasis is balance, and your balance is set at 170. And I might be actually, you know, Brad would be a much better person to talk about this, but I'm a much better person to tell a story about this, right? And so I think that this will really kind of hammer home this idea to most of the people, but if I get a little bit of the science wrong, Brad can clear it up for me. Anyway, long story short, is that the difference between the 170 pound person and the 245 person isn't different at all. The body basically goes to whatever you're giving it and adjusts, right? So even though the 245 pound person um, requires more calories because they have more lean mass. This is one thing that uh, most people believe that is incorrect, that obese people have poor metabolisms. Actually, obese people that are over-consuming, and it's important that you have those two pieces in place because not all obese people are over-consuming. That's another myth I would like to dispel. Um, but obese people that are over-consuming 
have high performing metabolisms and also have a lot of lean mass? I don't think Stephen did a good job of answering that question. But if you look at basically any resistance type training, when he was asked, why does a person like that have more lean mass? The answer is very simple. The biggest resistance tool that you have is not a barbell, right? It's not a body weight exercise. It's your actual body walking throughout the day. So gradually, if you walk and you're obese, your body is going to build muscle simply because of the fact that it's adjusting to the stimulus that you're giving it, even really in a scenario where you're under consuming. Though I, I would argue in that instance, it's going to probably opt for a little bit more fat, which is why you'll see some people that end up, oh, I want to say 195 pounds with a similar body fat to someone that is 245 pounds, right? And the reason is simple is that the 195 pound person is not eating enough to build that muscle um, to get leaner, right? So, so they kind of net the same. And I can give you a, a, a personal anecdote for me. I got, I really got stuck right at about 21%, even as I was losing weight, because I was not putting on muscle at that time. And a big part of it wasn't just because, you know, I was really um, earning a lot of my food at that time, because I was doing a lot of cardiovascular type things. I was scared to weight lift. I've talked about this a lot in the podcast. So I apologize if this is being redundant. But um, once I added in that resistance training and really, you know, just exploded at that time, Along with the food that I was eating and cutting down my cardio a bit, I put on 15 pounds of muscle within six months, right? And went from, you know, 21% to 9%, right? And also lost 10 pounds. That's the magic of, of what we refer to as newbie gains. But getting back to Amber's statement of how she dieted her way to obesity is that when you whatever you give your body, your body's going to adjust to it. So you will often see people and especially, this was something that I actually, I was trying to think of something that I definitely disagreed with Stefan. Um, and, and this was one, um, one common theme. And, and I think it's explained easily within science. So I don't know why they're stuck on this idea, but one thing that's easily explained is that metabolic rate goes down when food consumption goes down. And what will often be said is that the people that are obese aren't necessarily, um, that, that they're not being honest about the food that they're logging and that the food that they're logging ends up being more. What I'm saying is also true, but what Stefan is saying could also be true as well. But if, if scientifically we know that metabolic rate decreases as your body adjusts to it. So like, for instance, let's say that, you know, you're a 245 pound female, you start eating 1200 pounds or 1200 calories. 
what we know is going to happen is that you're going to lose weight initially, but you're going to hit a wall. And then what ends up happening in that scenario? Well, now you start adding in walking and exercising and crossfitting and, you know, all ultra marathons and, and yet you're still eating 1200 calories and you can't figure out how to lose weight. My argument, what we see every single day is those people are not lying. I believe you. I've written articles about this. This is one thing that I feel that, you know, there's a lot of places out there that give people macros and they don't really check about the specifics. They don't really have data. Yeah, you might think that they're checking your MyFitnessPal, but they're not being as diligent as they could be. And the reality is, is they know this too. They know that, um, you know, metabolic rate's going to go down and that severely obese people can hit a wall at the low part, right? So if we know that metabolic rate gets decreased drastically, then we also have to understand that metabolic rate increases, similar to what I said earlier with obese people overconsuming is that metabolic rate rises as it relates to digestion, as it relates to brain activity. There's just a lot of things going on that will increase metabolism. And so therefore, you're much more in control of your metabolism, but you're not in control of your metabolism if you're just eating less, right? So that's the idea related to moving your set point and then trying to lower it to where that becomes the new balance. That becomes the new homeostasis, right? And so I'm going to give you two examples, um, the wrong way, and then I'm going to give you an example of the right way, and then I'm going to see if we have any questions, and then we'll kind of end on that note because we're right at about the, the hour. But I feel like um, I'm doing some good work here. Um so I was talking to someone and, and I, I mentioned to them that I will be using this example. And she was talking about the fact that she eats uh, relatively low carb. And for her, relatively low carb was 80 grams of carbs, which is actually very low carb, um, especially given the fact that she's a triathlete. And so when you look at the amount of carbs that she's consuming, She's in a ketogenic state the good majority of the time. Now, once again, we're not really having a discussion related to calories, right? Because for the most part, calories, you know, you know, I'm a calorie agnostic. You know, it, however you want to do it is fine, but you have to you have to have some basic principles in place. And so, what what happens? And, and I was, you know, having this discussion with her is that. You know, she'll have calories and, and we, we went through her calories and it, it was roughly 1600 calories. But she admitted that, you know, it's probably 1500 calories the good majority of the time. And that every now and again, through some level of intermittent fasting, you know, it's it's kind of the, the basic routine that I think a, a lot of you guys you know, have fallen prey to is she then intermittent fast and things of this nature. So so. But but let's say that your baseline is 1,500, 1,600 calories, and then you run your triathlon, 
and you just have a few beers with people and you eat a reasonable meal. Nothing crazy, but your calories go up to 1,900. It's possible that some of that will store, right? But that's not the bigger problem. This is what Amber was talking about when she said she dieted her way to obesity. So when I was talking to this gal, um, I said, let me ask you a question. When you consume the 1,900 calories and you're dealing with a little bit inflammation because you ran a marathon and then your weight is up because you don't normally have beer but you had beer you don't normally had chicken wings but you had chicken wings you don't normally have 7,000 grams of sodium but you had 7,000 grams of sodiums what would you do in that scenario would you overreact and she says absolutely I would she's like you know um, I would fast longer I would eat fewer calories and so now all of a sudden we're having another discussion, right? Because 1500 is not the actual baseline, right? So when we're talking about set point and we're talking about homeostasis, what we're talking about is how your body's adjusting to the stimulus that you're giving it. In this instance, stimulus being food, but also being some level of exercise, right? So the body does not want to be underfed the body does not want to constantly survive it would like to thrive every now and again which is why i keep coming back to the overconsumption people have the higher metabolisms but if we say that and and i asked her this question so 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 when i talked about this in the podcast i would be more correct not not incorrect I said, would you say it's safe to say that on those days where you ate less, you ate 1,100 to 1,200? And she said, 100% that would be safe to say. So the real problem isn't the 1,900 calories that she had that one day. It was the overreaction. And every time you overreact, think about what many of you have done. I already know what you have done. I did it right? (laughs) Thousands of eating performers have done it, is when we don't feel in control of our weight, we over-restrict, and that hurts your metabolic rate, right? And so when we look at metabolic rate and how to actually have success, you know, which is the next piece of what I'm going to be talking about, you can't just go down. Your body and and I would argue that your body, and this is, you know, I, I would say that if you saw the data that I see every single day, you would go, oh, I see what Paul's talking about. But the body reacts much faster to down than it does up, right? And when I say down, I mean calories, right? So when we look at, um, you know, having an overconsumption day, you know, let's let's just say that somebody, you know, runs a triathlon and eats four to five thousand calories with a lot of sodium, they might see weight rise two to three pounds, but the 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 actual numbers might even be more than that. There's a lot of cases in, as an example where that person will lose weight, right? Because it, you know, it's sending a signal to your brain, we are not starving. We are going to live an abundant life, right? So when we talk about set point and potentially resetting set point at a lower number and, you know, working from there, 
you have to factor in moving your calories up to normal and possibly moving them up to overconsumption. So let's talk about overconsumption because I used to post a meme, you know, that said what we used to eat when we weren't exercising makes us jacked when we are exercising. And that is a really important piece because, you know, I'm not scared to say, you know, it's been many years at this point. But when I was living a sedentary life, you know, I wanted to do this, you know, no exercise interventions and things of this nature. And that never really worked. Right. So when we look at, let's say somebody, you know, Stefan used the 245 pound example. So I'll go ahead and use that as well. Right. So I'm going to already assume that this person has actually lost some weight and um, they have reset using a method similar to what we talk about with each reform. So when we talk about overconsumption, you can overconsume to a point that allows you to build muscle, right? So if you were say 270 pounds and you move to 245 pounds, well, you're going to be able to do more work in that instance and that is potentially going to build more muscle, especially if you add food back in to kind of reset your metabolism and kind of move to that more effective way of doing things. So now, you know, your calories are a little bit higher. You understand what, you know, that calories are important. And let's say that you, you know, as a female, you move to 2,300 calories as a 245-pound person because that's a that's a actually um, a relatively no, low number. When you look at total daily energy expenditure for a person of that size, it's going to normally be 4,000. But if they were eating 4,000 calories, they're most likely just going to stay the same or potentially get a little bit bigger over, overall. So in a sense... We might not be optimizing where they would be on the high side, but we're also kind of factoring in on the low side so that we're not kind of contributing to the problem long term, right? So let's say that they had lost some weight and their metabolism was compromised. They go through a short reset, let's say six to six to eight weeks. Um, very similar to what I talk about in Keep, Keep It Off, many of the case studies that would that we did. But now all of a sudden that person goes down to 230. Well, what do we know about 230? Air squats get easier, walking gets easier, you get up more throughout the day, your your neat, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis actually becomes a lot easier, right? So 230 pounds, you have a lot more advantages than you had at 245 pounds. So you're going to naturally be able to burn more calories. So when we start to normalize calories, when we bring the calories back to a normal range, what we're doing is basically putting money in your metabolic bank. And what we've already talked about is that your weight is a large contributor to your lean mass, just basically because you know, it, your body is a resistance tool. One of the things that I often say to kind of um, my younger guys that want to um, gain weight, Mark Ripito used to say this a lot, is that he would, some guy would come up to him and say, you know, I want to put on some some lean mass. 
um, and Mark would go, how much do you weigh? And the person would say, I weigh 170 pounds. And he said, he would say, come talk to me when you're 200 pounds. And what Mark was saying in that instance is that body weight is a big factor as it relates to lean mass. And that's what Stefan didn't do a great job explaining in the podcast, right? So, um, 230 pounds. One of the things that I really wanted to mention was something that I saw recently from one of my science friends. I can't remember who it was, but we all want to lose a lot of weight, right? In a very short period of time and just get it all over back over with and, and eat normal. You don't want to do it that way. And the reason you don't want to do it that way is you want to preserve your lean mass along the way, right? So if we're talking about someone who has, you know, a overfat problem in the case of 245 pounds and going to 230 pounds, that person's probably going to want to look at a pound to a pound and a half, you know. So over the course of you know, eight weeks, you know, that person might be looking at anywhere from 12 to 15 pounds, right? So, so we go from 245 pounds to 230 pounds, but if you do it in kind of that slow controlled manner, you are not going to lose as much weight. Now, one of the things that's interesting, if you're listening to this, because we're talking about a lot of high numbers, but now let's go to a low number. Let's say we were talking about a 125 pound person, the 125-pound person would probably only want to lose seven pounds because fat actually acts as a muscle preservant, right? And so when we look at um, the person that is already relatively lean, that person, their body views their muscle as a potential source of energy. The person that's 230, 245 pounds they do not. They do not have that problem, right? They have a, re a relatively abundant supply of fat. So the body's like, okay, great. Give me some of this fat, right? And so they do not have the issues related. So they can actually lose a little bit more. That's one of the advantages of being obese as it, as, as it relates to weight loss overall. So now all of a sudden, you're 245 pounds, 230 pounds. You know, we got you to 2,300 we know we can predict almost within a level of certainty. Excuse me one second. With a relative level of certainty, what the outcome is going to be, assuming that you haven't been dieting, you know, for the last, you know, 27 years. And so if we're coming from an overconsumption background and you've already dieted and got, and got the easy weight off, and now we're going after the next level. Six to eight weeks, you get your refocus, get us back to 2300. Now, new set point is 230. Now, a lot of people go, Well, won't I gain weight when I come back? That is largely dependent on you and your effort. And I know people hate that when I say that. But the simple fact of the matter is, your weight will fluctuate both up and down depending on what you do and why, right? So if you're 230 pounds and you're still lifting the same weights or maybe you're a little bit stronger, 
but now you can run a little bit longer. You can do more air squats easier, you know, things of that nature. You can offset that to the point of being positive. So it's very likely in that scenario, even as calories are starting to go up slowly, that that person could go from 230 to 225, right? Um, probably not much more than that, if I'm being real honest, just based on the data that we've seen. But some people do burn the candle at both ends. There were examples of that in the case studies that we did for the book. Um, and and you might be that kind of gangster, right? I was that kind of gangster. You know, I, I you know, was super motivated as the, as the weight came off. And I just approached it from, you know, anybody can lose five pounds. Anybody can lose five pounds. And I just went five pounds down at a time and then eventually got down to two pounds at a time, right? And it was just super motivating for me. And I burned the candle at both ends, you know, for what a, what was about a two-year period. But eventually I had to kind of move into what real life looked like. And that was um, not easy, but, but you know, obviously with the help of all the PhDs and stuff like that, um, it became easier. And that ultimately is what became Eat to Perform. People think of the, the beast mode piece as the, the Eat to Perform part. But I really look at the... Um, gradual approach that really was the big, big motivator for what we did. So now all of a sudden you have someone. So let, let's get, let's go ahead and say that someone wasn't beast moding, right? They, they, they beast moded to get to 230. And now, you know, because they took a little time off from the gym, maybe they got sick, maybe they got injured, right? You're also, you're susceptible to all of these things as you're asking your body to do more and you might not necessarily have the body that can um, deal with that level of central nervous system stimulation and things of that nature, right? So you shouldn't be upset if, you know, some things out of your control, you know, take your weight from 230 pounds to 235. And I get, once again, going back to the other example, that in that position, you will be tempted to restrict. And oh, by the way, if you restrict and you were eating 2,300 calories, you are going to lose weight easier, right? So it sets up this negative paradigm. But if you did that at week three, now you're essentially losing what your long-term ability would be, right? And so now all of a sudden we get you back to 2,300. And, you know, like I said, you're going to be looking at some range related to effort between 235 pounds and 225 pounds, right? So if you're in beast mode, you're going to go to 225 pounds. If you have some hurdles, you might go up to 235. Very unlikely that you would go to 245 especially if you're being coached by a need to form coach. Um, so now all of a sudden we're basically where you were previously. This is the basis for the book, right? Um, what I think is nice about what we're talking about here, especially if you read the book, the book really doesn't go that in depth to the scenario of why someone becomes obese eating less, right? So now all of a sudden we're at 230, we get your calories back to 2300, and then, you know, we go into a fat loss cycle eight weeks later, and 
we're able to go from 230 or even 235, like I was talking about, and lose another 15 pounds, you know, and maybe at that point you don't have the hurdles. So now you're at 220. That's your new set point. We're trying to establish homeostasis there for a while. Um, and that's how it works, right? And so when you look at the results that you want, a lot of time it's your timeline that's going to hurt you. You know, when I talk about two years, people are like, oh my goodness, two years, that sounds like so long. I mean, it seems so fast in the moment. You know, uh, it, it was just such a different paradigm for life, right? And if listening to this, it sounds like this is a little bit harder than just take sugar out of your diet, it is, right? It's because just taking sugar out of your diet and just going to super low calories stops working at a, at a certain point in time. And that's, that's the thing Stefan did not do a good job of explaining for advocates for our side, right? Um, I don't know in the context of the discussion that they were having that it would have been a good discussion to have, but that's what I spent this podcast on. So I'm going to look at questions, and as long as we don't have any questions, I'm going to shut things down. So, all right. So keep an eye out for um, becoming an Eatform supporter. We really would appreciate that. We're we're excited to be able to get you um, this ongoing content that that just kind of expands your knowledge, right? And, and that's a big part of what we're going to be able to do. But, you know, rather than something like this podcast, it's going to allow us to kind of dive into like these real specific ideas. Right. And then kind of get you guys some information so that when the gals at your gym goes, oh, my goodness, eggs are making me fat. You can go. That's not really what's happening. I was you know, I was watching this video from Dr. Brad. This is actually what happens. And as long as you're doing this, you're fine. If you're not doing this, then you might want to think about doing this, those kinds of things. Um, once again, um, if you're not a member, you know, we did just introduce for new members um, the ability to have the meal planning templates and even the ability to have a custom template. So uh, Hopefully that's helpful. We're really excited about all these new products that are coming out and, and the team is working really hard uh, to, to, you know, get these out to you. Um, so it, it, it's a fun time for you to perform and I appreciate everybody listening to this. I know some of this kind of gets into the weeds, but I hope I was able to tell the story well enough so it, it makes sense and why it's actually more correct um, than just saying take this out of your diet and all of a sudden you'll be healthy because we all kind of know if you reduce refined sugars from your diet you know you will be a little bit more healthy but there wasn't a lot of discussion about exercise even from Stefan's point of view right that could have been you know when they when they ended the the thing they said that that could have gone on for six days and they were absolutely right there were so many things that you could delve into, right? But you do see why people fall for these quick fix messages a lot. So hopefully this is enlightening for everyone and have a great weekend.